You can find your seat as the oldest group of freshwater kids is going to make their way out of the room. I know what you're thinking. You're just getting your voices. They barely, some of you weren't even singing, I'm sure, thinking that you'd have a song number two that you could pick up on and and start singing with us. But um, we're going to go ahead and get started into God's word. If you brought your copy of God's Word with you, and I hope that you did, I'm going to ask that you would take it and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, as we talk today about how God is in control. How God is in control. And as He is in control, we have the privilege of placing our trust in Him for everything that we could ever need in our lives. John chapter 18. That's going to be like page 904, 905, something like that in your pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. Uh, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. I'm Joshua, lead pastor here at Freshwater. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you before you um, leave for the day. Um, As you're turning in your copy of God's Word, I've got a question for us this morning. Does anybody in here have a reoccurring dream or a reoccurring nightmare? When I was a child, I had some dreams that I just could not seem to shake out of my mind. I couldn't escape. And they were always scary dreams. My parents really did not do a good job censoring my sisters and I from seeing Um, what most people would call inappropriate things on television. So oftentimes I would go to bed scared out of my mind. But now that I've grown up, the dream has changed a little bit and that um, I keep having over and over again this dream where I'm driving down the road in my car or in someone else's car and everything's going great except for one little rather significant problem, and that problem is that I don't have any brakes, which I've never experienced in real life. So I don't know exactly what that feels like in real life, but I can imagine it's a pretty stressful event. And what's even worse is sometimes in my dreams the gas pedal is stuck. So it's not only that I'm going down the road with no brakes, but the gas pedal is stuck, so I'm accelerating, and it seems like I'm going faster and faster and faster with every simple mile that I travel down the road. So I'm flying through intersections, I'm laying on my horn, I'm waving at people trying to get their attention so that I don't crash into them, and that's my reoccurring dream. That's like my reoccurring nightmare. Admittedly, it's not a zombie apocalypse dream like some of you have. It's not the, I fell in a pit of snakes, you know, or something crazy like some of those dreams that sometimes we have. Um, And and hear me correctly, um, I've thought a lot about why I keep having this dream. And I don't believe that, that every dream that you have when you take a nap has some secondary subliminal thing that's really going on behind the scenes of our mind. I don't believe that. But I do think the real reason that I'm so frightened by not having brakes and having the gas pedal stuck in my car where I'm accelerating uh, is not just the fact that I have no brakes. I think it's the fact that I'm living in a world that I can't control. And maybe you're like me, where what scares me more than anything is not being able to control my life, not being able to control the world. So what I want to talk to you about today is how if I understand who God is and what he's revealed in his word about how he operates in the world and how he's consistently forever been ushering history toward his end, you and I have absolutely nothing to be frightened of because God is in complete and total 
control. And because he is in control, we can place our absolute unwavering trust in him. Now, where are we going to see that? Well, if you're new with us, know that right now we're marching through the Gospel of John. We're going to finish the Gospel of John by the end of November when we start our Advent series that will take us through to Christmas. And today we're going to get very close to closing out chapter 18. We've titled this short series through some of these closing chapters as the passion. And when we talk about passion in this context, we're not talking about an emotional state of you being really excited about something. The passion, the word passion has oftentimes been used to describe the events surrounding the death of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the passion in this case, we're talking about those events that are oftentimes called the passion of Jesus Christ, meaning the death of Jesus. And that death is right around the corner. As in next week when we come back and we get into chapter 19, it's in that chapter that Jesus is actually killed. So um, what I want us to see this morning that I bet every single one of us needs to at least be reminded of, and maybe we need to have it touch our lives for the first time, is that we worship a God who is in complete control of everything. And when I say everything, what I actually mean is I mean everything. One of my favorite illustrations comes from an English preacher who's long dead and gone by now, but he went by the name of Charles Spurgeon, and he he said it like this. This is one of my favorite pictures. He said that as the sun shines in the window on a nice, clear summer day, and as you can see the particles of, of dust floating around your home, illuminated by that ray of sunshine, if it wasn't for God's control, even those dust particles would fall to the ground. Even they would not be able to be sustained and to find movement, to find life, we could almost call it, if it were not for our God. So when we talk about God being in control, we're not just talking about the events that happen in your life. We're talking about how God has his hand on every event that has ever occurred throughout history. And what our text is going to show us this morning is that that even includes the death and the murder of God's perfect son. And if we can see that God was in control, even in the death of Christ, we as his followers would be wise, wouldn't we, to trust him in the events in our life. So the way that we're going to frame this this morning is we're going to assume that not all of us are living with a fresh acknowledgement that God is in control of everything. And assuming that that is the case, we're going to see two ways that we can hand control of our lives over to God. In other words, two ways that we can proclaim to the world that while they're following a world that is spinning out of control, we are following a God who is in complete and total control of everything. Of everything. If you're doing the fill-in thing and you worship God on the, the, the sermon outline, here's going to be your first blank. Here's the first way. When we obey God both internally and externally. When we obey God both internally and externally. And externally. Because look at verses 28 through 32 with me in your copy of God's word. What do they say? It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now let's stop there and let's think about this and let's work our way through this text. What we have here is we have these religious leaders who are insisting on the death of Jesus. 
Remember that Jesus has throughout the the course of the Gospel of John been having these run-ins with them where at first they might have been a little bit amused by Jesus and the miracles that he was doing, but you don't give it very long at all and eventually they want to kill Jesus and they're looking for the opportunity to kill Jesus and this is the culmination of them looking for the opportunity. So last week you remember Jesus was arrested Peter denies Jesus three times. Nick and Brian did a great job preaching that text. And now the religious leadership of the day is looking for what they believe is a legal way to kill Christ. And that they know that they don't have a legal standing to kill him. So they're looking for somebody else to do it. And what this is, if we think about these men that are pushing for the death of Jesus, is this is a picture of men who are doing a great job at fixing the outside of their lives, aren't they? They're doing a great job, a fantastic job at obeying the rules, at towing the line. We could look at them today and we would conclude that they are perfect Christian men, yet internally their hearts are filled with pride and conceit and bitterness and rebellion against the God that they're supposedly following. And we know that that is the case because of these two characteristics that rise to the surface out of the text. They kind of characterize their rebellion. First, under letter A, they have rule-keeping but no relationship. And then under letter B, they're guilty of blame-shifting. They have rule-keeping but no relationship, and also they're guilty of blame-shifting. That first one, rule-keeping but no relationship. Think about this. Look again at verse 29. It says that they drag Jesus to the governor's headquarters because they know the governor can send him to his death. But it says that they refused to enter the governor's headquarters because by doing so they would be defiled. Meaning they would break the Old Testament law and they would not be able to participate and take part in the Passover. Which was a major Jewish festival and celebration. So we have got to catch how absolutely hypocritical this is. Consider, they're demanding the murder of an innocent man, but at the same time, they're concerned about not being able to take part in the Jewish holiday of the Passover, which celebrates the God who says killing innocent people is wrong. Did you catch that? So there's obviously something wrong there. The blame shifting, look at it in verses 29 through 32, because what is happening? Let's just think through this conversation. Pilate, the man who has the power to sentence Jesus to death, he asked them, what has Jesus done that is wrong? They say back, basically, if I can paraphrase verse 30, they say, look, Pilate, just trust us. He's a bad dude. Just take our word for it. At which Pilate says, verse 31, then judge him by your own law. This doesn't have anything to do with me. At which they respond back to him, verses 31 and 32. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So catch this. They they admit that by their own religious laws, they have absolutely no reason to kill Jesus. They admit that. They admit that for them to kill Jesus would be unlawful. But they know that if Pilate kills him, then the sin is not on their hands. So they think. So their picture in their mind is that if we can get somebody else to kill him, which we really want him to die, if we can get somebody else to kill him, then we're still in their heads morally pure and unstained from sin. Kind of killing two birds with one stone. So this thing, if you work through this, it stinks to high heaven of hypocrisy and double standards. These guys are so stuck in religion and so enamored with the desire to make sure their lives look good on the outside, they completely ignore the importance of what is going on on the inside. And this is the exact same struggle that every single one of us has today. Well, you may not ever stand in a place where you're trying to get a judge to condemn an innocent man and ultimately sentence him to death. But we are not people that are naturally drawn to focus on the heart, are we? 
That's not the way that we're naturally wired. We are not people who are naturally drawn to focus on internal transformation first. No, instead we've been conditioned by, sometimes by religion, sometimes by society, sometimes by whatever else, to focus on cleaning up everything on the outside. You know, making ourselves look good from the outside, but not really focusing on what's happening internally. Case in point, I used to see this as a child, and I'd really struggle with how all of this played out, you know, just wrestling with the gospel, and even as a, as, as a child, I couldn't understand it. Uh, my grandparents on my father's side lived between Latham, Missouri, and Versailles, Missouri. And if you know anything about that part of the country, it's a great representation of rural Missouri. You know, you've got cattle farms and dairy farms and you've got row crops and you've got turkey farms all over the place. It's all there. But there are also a lot of Mennonites that live in part, that part of central Missouri as well. A lot. And my grandfather had especially buddied up with some of them, so I got to spend some time around them. Great people, and I really enjoyed them. Really polite and really nice to us. And something you need to know about my grandfather was that he smoked like a chimney. He was raised in a day when it was cute for an eight-year-old kid to smoke, literally. It was considered cute, and now it's like child abuse, right? That's happening. It's not seen as a good thing. But Mennonites, I came to learn, believe strongly that it's sinful to smoke. And you might know this, but there are a lot of rules that you have to follow to be a Mennonite. So you've got certain clothes that you have to wear and certain vehicles that you can and can't own and can't have any pictures of loved ones in your home. And there are a lot of rules that you have to obey if you're going to be uh, Mennonite. But my grandfather had all these buddies that were Mennonites. And my grandfather obviously was not Mennonite. And he'd take me with him to visit them. And he'd always take them cigars. And I was confused really confused as a child because I thought in my head, I thought that they believed that it was sinful to smoke. And my grandfather corrected me and he said, no, Josh, you don't understand. They don't believe it's sinful to smoke. They believe it's sinful to spend money on tobacco. So if somebody else will buy them their tobacco, it's completely acceptable, at least for that group of Mennonites, to smoke. It's not breaking any rules at all. Now, that little account is not to say anything about smoking. It's not to say anything about Mennonites or anything like that. That's not the point of it at all. That little account is just to point out the hypocrisy that can creep into any of our lives when we became focused on rule-keeping. When it's just about keeping a rule, we live a life that's kind of a double standard, don't we? We live a life that really isn't consistent with who we say that we are. So allow me to say this before we move on. If you focus on the transformation of your heart, if you pray for God to change your desires and your feelings and the way you think about him, he will do that. And he will change your heart. And then your life will later come in line with the heart change that has taken place. So that's the first way, according to the text, that we hand control of our lives over to God. When we obey God both internally and externally, which they obviously were not doing, these religious leaders in John chapter 18. Now here's the second way. Here it is. When we live for God's kingdom rather than for those of the world. When we live for God's kingdom rather than for those of the world. Because look with me now. Pick up in verse 33. And we're going to read through to the first half of verse 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. At which Pilate says back to him, what is truth? So stop right there and let's think about this. Now Pilate begins to speak directly to Jesus. Up until this point, Pilate's really been having a conversation with the religious leadership of the day. The guys who want to see Jesus die. And what happens here is that Jesus, standing before the man that really is the earthly leader and ruler of that area in many ways, as Rome has conquered the land and now is occupying the land, Jesus begins to explain during his interrogation how the kingdom that Jesus leads is not like the kingdom that Pilate leads. And that's something that you and I need to realize. When we trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, when we repent and believe, the Bible refers to us as the called out ones. Did you realize that? You are the called out ones. It refers to us as aliens living in a foreign land. We once were part of the kingdom of this world. We once were part of the kingdoms of the earth. But now our residency, our membership, we could even say your first citizenship is not in any earthly kingdom. It is in the kingdom of God. It is in the kingdom that God leads, not the kingdom that earthly kings lead. Now, maybe you struggle with, maybe, the, maybe there's a part of you that, that really isn't grasping this, and you're getting pulled back into the world, or maybe you know that your citizenship is first in God's kingdom, but in reality, you're kind of living for the world, and you're kind of living in the world and following the ways of the world, just like Pilate is. And if you are, there are two things that I really like you to see regarding the way that, God, that Jesus describes God's kingdom. Two things that I really want you to notice. First, under letter A, God's kingdom is focused on what truly matters. It's focused on what truly matters. Because look again at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And that we can rush over that real quick and not really understand what's going on there. That question, a lot of people say, shouldn't be read as just a question. It's meant to be read in a condescending tone, like our you the king of the Jews? Like, you? You don't look like a king. You don't look like somebody that's going to raise up an army and take the land back from us. Do you? You don't look like that guy. You don't look like somebody that is worthy of following, is what Pilate is likely actually saying. It's not, are you the king of the Jews? It's, are You are the king of the Jews. Are you kidding me? So what does this tell us? This tells us that Pilate in his heart is really a lot like the religious leaders that are pulling Jesus into this court. And that he's really focusing on the outside. He's really concerned with what is happening on the outside. When we as Christians, we're not primarily influenced by all that. We don't need to care if our building is an immaculate, beautiful building. We don't need to necessarily care about what a person looks like externally. We're not a church where you have to have it all together and have to act like your life is perfect or anything like that. Why? Because we want to focus on what really matters. We don't focus on cleaning up the outside of your life. We want to focus on cleaning up the inside of your heart, you know. There's a big difference there. Second, under letter B, God's kingdom has answers. It has answers. The kingdoms of the world, of course, do not Because Jesus, in this little back and forth interrogation with Pilate, he works Pilate to the place where it is obvious that Pilate's kingdom and God's kingdom are very different. I'll give you three quick examples of how they're different. The first one, Pilate's kingdom, the Roman Empire, is entirely about military conquest, isn't it? When Jesus, remember, stopped Peter when Peter drew out a sword and cut off the soldier's ear. 
Jesus stopped him. And Jesus says, verse 36, that's not what God his, that's not what God's kingdom is about. It's not about military conquest. It's not about advancing by the sword. Also, Pilate's kingdom is all about gaining ground here on earth. But Jesus says at the end of verse 36, my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate himself in verse 38 is wondering, what is truth? You know, what is right? What is wrong? Who's to say that I shouldn't kill you? Who's to say that I should kill you? Well, what does Jesus say? Verse 37, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So, friends, if I've missed you up until this point, this is when I beg you to come back in because this is, this is good stuff. I think this is very intentional on Jesus' part. Here he stands in the presence of one of the most powerful earthly leaders in the entire Middle East, and Jesus is systematically presenting himself and his kingdom as a better kingdom. God's kingdom is a better kingdom than what you've got, Pilate. And what you and I need to know is that in the midst of this crazy political season, we do not place our feet on the rocky, crumbling soil of American politics. We place our feet on the cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ. And if we will place our feet on the cornerstone of the, Jesus, uh, a cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ, nations and political persuasions are going to crumble, aren't they? They're going to change with every you know, blowing of the wind and turn of the tide. And it's all going to just you know, be a disaster. And we may grieve because we love our country, but our faith is not placed in our country. Don't Please don't do that. Don't place your faith in a country. Place your faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the only kingdom that's going to last for all of eternity. So let me give you an example for this. There's, of course, at this point in the year, the election cycle, whatever, there's no greater example than this than, obviously, the impending elections. And by the way, just to kind of clear the air, how do you confuse a Republican? You don't. They're born that way. You like that? Okay. Now, some of you are mad. It's cool. It's all right. Because if you're mad, you're about to be happy. If you're happy right now, you're about to be mad. Because you know what the difference is between a Republican and a Democrat, don't you? A Republican signs a check on the front and a Democrat signs on the back. Oh. Your Democrats always want your money. Do you get that? See how, so I may, so what I wanted to do there was, I, Shasta knows, when I go home on Sunday, I want to make sure that everyone hates my guts. So that was really my objective. And if you're an independent out there or a Green Party or Libertarian or whatever, come back some other Sunday and I'll have something to, to make you angry as well. But, but it's a mess right now, isn't it? No matter whichever position or candidate you might seem to align yourself with, we all admit that this is an absolute mess. It is. It's a disaster. No matter how enthusiastic you might be about your candidate right now, it's just, it's just not working out. And what you find is that nobody really has a strong handling on how to fix the mess. And why doesn't anybody really have a strong handling on how to fix the mess? Because outside of the church, kingdoms of this earth are dealing with important issues. Don't get me wrong, but they're not dealing with the most important issues. They're not dealing with the things of eternity. They're not dealing with why people are broken on the inside. They're not dealing with purpose of life. So, if you've over the last six months had more conversations about your chosen political candidate than you have about Jesus, you know, maybe we need to be reminded that we, our citizenship is not first in an earthly kingdom. And I love my country. Our citizenship is first in the kingdom of God. So let's think about what we've seen this morning and then we'll be done. We've agreed that God is in control. 
isn't he? He's, in, he's, he's walking this toward his chosen end, even in the trial of Jesus Christ. He's in control of every event that has ever occurred, and that includes what many of us would believe is the most unlikely event in the trial and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. We show that we believe God is in control when we obey both internally and externally, as well as when we live for God's kingdom rather than our own. And if those don't exist, it may very well be evidence that we don't believe in a God that is in control to the extent that the Bible says that he's in control. But I was thinking, you know, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself as we go through this, you're thinking, man, I, I, I get it. I think I see that God is in control of even the trial and the death of Jesus Christ. And then surely can, God can be in control of my life. I understand that. I think I understand that. But, but let's just be honest enough to admit that, that even knowing that, even understanding that, sometimes it's difficult to implement it, isn't it? Like in my life, I can preach this, but sometimes you get yourself in a situation. It's hard to, when you're watching your loved one die, it's hard to look into their eyes and see them take their last breath and at the same time remind yourself, God is in control of this. It's hard to watch the news and see the absolute chaos that is occurring around the world and conclude that God really has this thing taken care of. So how do we take this to the next level? How do, what do we actually do? do? How do we implement this in our lives? So I've got two ways and then we'll be done. First, show your trust in God by doing something awesome for God. Do something awesome for God. Now, hear me clearly. When I say do something awesome for God, God is not a needy God. Don't hear me saying that. God is not needy. There's nothing that you and I can totally give to God because he already owns it, right? So it's not like God is needy. Um, what I mean when I say do something awesome for God is I mean begin to live a life that proclaims to God and to others that you actually trust him, that we actually believe that he really has all of this taken care of, that this is really going to work out. It's like when I'm at the fair at a theme park or theme park with my um, wife and my two little girls and, and they're, my, my little girls are being pulled in both directions regarding whether they want to ride a roller coaster or not. And they'll look at a roller coaster or a fair ride and they'll say, man, that looks awesome. And then two seconds later they're like, I don't want to do that. And they're being pulled in both directions. So I'll get down in their face and I'll say, I'll grab one of them. I'll say, hey, you know, you, you believe your daddy loves you and then I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you on this roller coaster, right? And they say, well, yeah, of course, Dad. Of course I believe that. And then I say, okay, good. Now prove that you believe that. Let's get on the roller coaster. At which they normally say no and they march away to mom, which proves that I have absolutely no influence over my children. But the point is that sometimes we need to do something to show the world that we actually believe what we say we believe, right? And we actually believe God is in control. So maybe you're proving to the world that you really trust God is going to be going on an international disciple-making trip with us. Maybe for you it's going to be being disciplined in your Bible reading and prayer, which is an incredibly awesome thing to do. Maybe for you it's going to be being obedient with your finances and working tirelessly to free your life from debt so that you can use your money to the glory of God. But whatever it is, take a long, hard look at your life and ask, what awesome thing can I do in my life to prove to the world that I really believe God is in control? Secondly, secondly, show your trust in God by finding your peace in Christ and Christ alone. Show your trust in God by finding your peace in Christ and Christ alone. Just last night, this will teach you all not to brag. I was bragging because I was outside for several hours and no allergy problems at all. And then here I am, I'm sniffing and everything. So God's like, I'll get you. God doesn't really do that, by the way. Sorry, shouldn't have said that. Uh, but show your trust in God by finding your peace in Christ and Christ alone. That really is the startling picture in the trial of Christ, isn't it? That the people that are supposedly pursuing peace from God, those people are the ones that reject the offer of peace. 
The ones supposedly pursuing peace are the ones that kill the Prince of Peace. Isn't that something? And isn't that a picture of the world? Like the world is looking for peace and satisfaction in things that can never give it. They can never give it while rejecting the only person that can. So for this reason, there might be no greater testimony to the world regarding what we believe to be true than that we just rest in Jesus. And we don't get caught up in these things that oftentimes pop up in the world and in society. So let me close with this and then I'll be done. This is an account, and I, I tell it acknowledging that I can't, you know, it's quoted by a number of different authors, but I can't really know if it's true or not. Um, but it's said that during the U.S. Civil War, Abraham Lincoln met with a group of pastors for a prayer breakfast. And Abraham Lincoln was not what we would call a, you know, a regular church goer or anything like that. He wasn't probably even a Christian. But many people described him as a man of deep, if at times, unorthodox faith. And it's said that at one point during that prayer breakfast, one of the pastors spoke up and they said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. And then Lincoln is reported as saying, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. And the point is crystal clear. Any talk of God's sovereignty, of how God controls events, how God was even controlling the trial of his own son, Jesus Christ, and how God controls every event and every single situation in our lives, that does not point us to a God that has the power and the desire to give you whatever your sinful heart desires. It points to a God who is worthy of following and submitting every part of our lives to. And if you're not following and submitting to Christ, let me just be this encouragement you. Let me just take this time and just kind of encourage you. Whatever it is that you're following or submitting to, Jesus has presented a better way, a better kingdom, a better example, a better thing to follow. So I'd encourage you just to repent and believe. Turn from your sins, place your faith in Jesus, and begin following Christ. Now, if you'd like to do that, if you'd like to hear more about what that looks like, we've got three ways for you to respond. First of all is during this next song, we're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a second. And as we sing, um, I'm going to stand in the foyer at the Connect table. If you want to step out of the aisle and come back and talk with me, I'd love to walk you through that. Second of all is at the door on the way out. So once again, um, I stand at the door. If you just want to reach out after the service and say, hey, Josh, I've chosen to repent and believe and follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you about that. And then the third way is the way that many people respond, and that's with your Connect card. So on your Connect card, which is on the inside of your worship guide, there's a bubble at the top that says, um, I've chosen to follow Jesus. If you want to hit that bubble with your contact information, you can throw that in the offering baskets when they combine just a second, and we'd love to connect with you and share with you about what that looks like. Now at this point in the service, we'd also like to give you an opportunity um, to give as an act of worship. If you're guests with us this morning, know that we do not in any way expect you to give. This is the time when our regular attenders and partners of Freshwater give their tithes and offerings to support the work of the ministry and ultimately as a means of worshiping God. That's what giving is. It's, it's a means of, of worshiping God. So the service hosts are going to come forward during that last song, and they're going to pass the offering baskets. Um, know that there are four ways to give, the first one being those baskets, second way is the giving box in the foyer, third way is the giving kiosk in the foyer, and fourth way is online at freshwaterjc.com. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll stand and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, that we get to go to your word. I thank you, Lord, that... We just get to see how your word challenges us and it changes us. And my prayer is that we would not resist this. We would live lives that proclaim to the lost, that proclaim to those who aren't even followers of Christ, and also that proclaim to our brothers and sisters in the Lord that you got it. You got it taken care of, Lord. 
Will you let us live these lives? When, when we find ourselves in a situation where it's difficult to acknowledge this, would you remind us of this truth? I thank you, Lord, that I get to be with my siblings in Christ today on the Lord's Day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.